if you would, turn with me in your copies of God's Word to the book of Matthew, chapter 8, verse 23. And as you turn there, let me just say that it is fun, it is great to see your faces as masked as they may be. It's been an extra few weeks since uh, Cor and I have seen most of you here because we've been going to the 11 o'clock service. But it is a pleasure and it is a privilege to be serving you from the pulpit, to be giving Eric a rest for these couple weeks. We're going to be looking at, uh, in these next two weeks, three great back-to-back gospel texts in the book of Matthew, covering two uh, episodes today, and we'll cover the third uh, next week. So hear now God's word from Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going back into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Let's pray. Gracious, heavenly, sovereign God, thank you for these precious, these beautiful, these powerful words. And we ask that you would use them to deal powerfully with us. We thank you for this chance to meditate on the glories of your Son, and we ask that you would instill in us such an amazing confidence in him, Lord, that you would strengthen our faith that way. Help us, Lord, to to listen well, to look at these scriptures well, uh, and help me, Lord, to glorify you with my words. I ask these things in the name of your precious Son, Jesus. Amen. I personally, uh, in my life, haven't faced too many life-threatening circumstances. I can only think of maybe a couple. When I was about 14 or 15, I was almost charged by a rhinoceros. Uh, It's a true story. Uh, Last year, when I was skiing, a patch of ice almost sent me over the side of a mountain where I was saved by a tree. And as I'm sure as anyone else would, I've had a few close calls on the road. 
some of us, I'm sure, have gone through at least a couple of experiences like this where it was truly life-threatening and the Lord has protected us, something similar to what we see the disciples going through here. And all of us, at one point or another, I'm sure, have gone through things that may have felt life-threatening at the time. Things like your high school public speaking course, your first time on a roller coaster, your first job interview, or just every time you find a spider in the bathtub. And absolutely, we have faced fears that are not so innocent or trivial, like whether we could have made a better career decision. We may fear how we might be affected by an economic downturn. Right now, especially, we fear that our, our children, our parents, or spouse might not stay healthy. We may fear that those who are suffering from any number of illnesses, that they may, they may not get healthy. We may fear that they won't come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. A fearsome circumstance does not need to be a moment of fight or flight. It can be a short-term fear, like fear of the COVID virus. It can be a long-term fear, like fear of death. It can be as innocent as being afraid of the scary noise in the basement. Or it can be as weighty as not knowing where you're going to go when you die. A fearsome circumstance is a moment or a situation that tests our faith reflexes. It's a faith-rattling moment that causes a knee-jerk reaction of our trust and it forces us to reckon with where we put it. These are the kinds of situations to have in mind when we come to this text. So we're going to look at these two back-to-back -back episodes because they are connected by this common theme. In fact, uh, in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke, Whenever these episodes occur, they always occur together like this, back to back. And in particular, what God is communicating to us through Matthew is that in the face of fearsome circumstances, we can trust in Jesus, the Son of God, because he is sovereign over every power in every realm at every time. We are called to respond the fearsome circumstances, by trusting in Jesus, by believing that Jesus is ever more capable, ever more powerful to handle the situation than we are. And the reason we trust in Jesus is because he is sovereign over every chaotic earthly element, and he has ultimate authority over every demonic power, every scheme in the spiritual realm. He holds all of these powers in check, every power, powers we can see, powers we can't see, and he's been doing it since creation. During his time on earth, he put the sovereignty on shocking display, and in the future, he will rid creation of every threatening power. But for now, the things that we are afraid of in this world are in this world on our account. In one sense, we may be victims of these things, but all of the fallenness, all of the chaos, hatred that's in the world, it stems from Adam's first sin in the garden and our sin in him. Think of uh, what it is that you're most afraid of, physical pain, uh, friends abandoning you, your life plans being taken away. So long as we are finite and so long as there is sin in the world, these things are going to be with us. We will face them. We will be afraid of them. 
and we will not be able to make them go away. And so it is no mere nicety, but it is our only hope that Jesus can be trusted because he is sovereign over every power in every realm at every time. That's what this text, these two scenes, are designed by God to convince us of. So to work ourselves through the narrative, we'll look at these two different fearsome circumstances. Got to stay here, don't have a look. And in each case, we'll look at how different people around Jesus respond to the circumstance, and we'll see how Jesus responds to the circumstance. And then also in each case, see how the people then respond to Jesus. So the first fearsome circumstance, of course, is the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Now the sea is six or 700 feet below sea level, and it's surrounded by rapidly changing topography. And further out, you have the Mediterranean Sea on one side and a desert on the other. And so the result of all this is that a storm can form over the Sea of Galilee in less time than it takes to turn your boat around. Matthew calls this storm a seismos. And that's the biblical Greek word that we usually see referring to the great end-time earthquakes. And this isn't just a seismos, it's a mega seismos, a great storm, a great shaking, if you will, on the Sea of Galilee, where a regular storm is already a pretty scary thing. In one sense, we shouldn't be surprised at how panicked the disciples get. We almost feel a little scared for them. Many of these men have spent their entire lives to date working as fishermen on this sea. They know the waters like the back of their hand, and they are thoroughly familiar with the strange weather patterns. They are the most reliable experts on whether a storm can be dangerous or not. And so imagine how fearful they must have been, how dangerous the situation must actually have been for these lifelong fishermen to call out to the carpenter, save us, we are dying. Sometimes, as we know, Jesus' response is a bit unexpected. And when it is, he's usually trying to reveal to us what the real problem is. And that's what's happening here. At first, he almost seems dismissive of the disciples. We can envision the waves crashing. The boat is swamping, the text says, and the disciples are probably gripping to the side of the boat, white knuckle. They're staring at Jesus with desperate eyes. And when Jesus wakes up, he just looks at the disciples. And in a moment where he seems impossibly unaware of the chaos around him, he asks, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. So in the strange contrast between the disciples' reaction and Jesus's, clearly we are supposed to learn something about the nature of faith. Last time Jesus used this term, you of little faith, was when he was teaching his disciples about not being anxious, not being afraid in the Sermon on the Mount. That was in chapter 6. In other words, he says, God takes care of the lilies and sparrows. Will he not also take care of you who are far more valuable than they? Will he not also clothe you, O you of little faith? But this idea of little faith can be a bit confusing. We have to understand that we're talking not so much about a quantity, but a quality. That is, when we talk about how much faith 
a person has. We're not speaking about how much knowledge they have about the object of their faith, their theology of Jesus or of God. We're not talking about how many good deeds they've done to express their faith. It's not a matter of tiny faith versus the faith of a theological giant. After all, faith the size of a mustard seed can move mountains. But by quality, we mean it's more of a matter of the strength of faith. It's a matter of the extent to which you entirely rest on Jesus, who is outside of yourself. I think it's important at this point to understand that strong faith, so to speak, doesn't come from any sort of introspection. We can't muster it up by navel-gazing. Have stronger faith. Have stronger faith. We can't do that. Uh, think of when a child leaps off of the top of a staircase or off the monkey bars when you walk by and you don't expect it. That kind of confidence doesn't come from some kind of process of self-talk or introspection. It comes from a personal knowledge of who you are, that you are an adult they can trust. So they see you when they leap. That is how it works with us. A strong faith comes from a Christ focus, not on a self, not from a self focus. In essence, faith is being turned outward towards Jesus, whereas fear and anxiety are being turned inward on ourselves. That's why faith relates to anxiousness in the way that light relates to darkness. Faith chases out anxiousness. That's why in Philippians 4, Paul says the antidote to anxiousness is to turn your attitude uh, towards God, away from yourself, to let your requests be made known to God with thanksgiving. And this is so important that Jesus makes it one of the first things he teaches his disciples. Don't be anxious about what you will eat or drink or wear, but instead trust that God will be faithful. God is far more capable of being faithful to himself and faithful to his promises than we are of creating our own happiness. God is far more capable of managing our situation than we are of protecting ourselves or our families. And so it is, in that way, an act of pride to think that your life, your food, your resources, your safety ultimately rests in your hands. And faith is, if a firm, strong faith is letting those things go to God, to hand them over to God. And of course, of course, that does not mean that every time you feel fear, every time your flight or fight response kicks in, that you have poor faith. Of course, it does not mean that. But in this case, Jesus sees an inappropriate anxiousness in the disciples' fear. They should know by now that their teacher has a mission that a storm could not stop. They should know by now that Jesus has authority over created things. So Jesus highlights the real problem by asking the disciples this question and at the same time giving the answer. Why were the disciples cowardly? Because they had little faith. What Jesus saw when he woke up was a group of men 
with an undue fear of death in their eyes, gripping to their own fate instead of to their Lord. The wordsmith Matthew Henry puts it this way, he does not chide them for disturbing him with their prayers, but for disturbing themselves with their fears. There's a second part, of course, to Jesus' response. After taking care of the discipleship problem, he then takes care of the storm problem, and he does so with a fearless power. Probably the most memorable part of the story, of course, is how Jesus responds to this storm, even before the disciples know what's happening. He's sleeping. The strange contrast that we feel, again, in our minds when we picture this man resting, surrounded by all of this unrest, is supposed to make a point. Jesus places such perfect trust in the Father's plans that he is just not concerned with the storm. As a man, surely he was exhausted from having spent an entire day teaching and healing. But the sleep in the face of death like this can only come from his confidence that, to use John's language, his hour had not yet come. Eventually, of course, Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves. And notice that Matthew says that these natural elements obey him. They respond as though he was one with authority. And just as quickly as there arose this great storm, a picture of the formless waters from the beginning of Genesis, Jesus creates with his word a great calm. The disciples should have recognized that they were in the middle of an illustration, in the middle of a demonstration that announced that Jesus, their teacher, was Yahweh, Lord over the sea, over the universe. See, one of the Old Testament's favorite ways of talking about Yahweh's strength and his power is to picture him as the God who controls, who quiets, who rebukes the unruly waters. For example, listen to how this scene fulfills our Old Testament reading, Psalm 107. Verses 28 and 30 say this, Then they cry to the Lord, or Yahweh, in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Yahweh was in the boat. That's why Jesus brought them onto the sea in the first place, to show them, but Matthew is trying to convince us, this concept of Emmanuel, God with us. That's why Jesus was confidently sleeping through the chaos. That's why he let the disciples experience terror. That's why he rebuked them. The whole stage is put together to announce that Jesus has the authority of Yahweh over the sea. Uncontrollable waters like this throughout the Bible are pictures of evil and chaos. Just think of Daniel and Revelation when these terrible beasts come out of this swirling sea. But at the end of our Bibles, and it describes the new heavens and new earth, it says that there will be no more sea. That's a picture of the perfect peace that Jesus will establish. So in this little episode of Yahweh in the boat, we have an illustration, a picture of Yahweh's relationship to the cosmos. Jesus answers the most threatening things that come against his people, the big things and the small things. 
He puts this right in front of the disciples' faces. He forces them to feel it, and they still don't get it. If these men had understood the testimony they had just witnessed, their, their response would have sounded like the next two verses of Psalm 107. They say this, Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Eventually they'll get it, but they don't get it quite yet. And the way that Matthew emphasizes this point for us is by leaving that last question hanging. What sort of man is this, that even this, the sea and the wind obey him? They marvel, but they're also confused. What sort of man is this? Now this, this open question, it, it's what carries the story, carries the tension into the next episode, our second fearsome circumstance. To get the full, the full picture of, of what's going on, remember that Matthew is writing here to primarily a Jewish audience. But here's what a boat full of Jews meet when they come to the other side. Unclean people in a Gentile territory, demon-possessed men coming out of tombs, the unclean place of the dead, and a herd of pigs. It's only speculation, but I can imagine the disciples getting to shore and going, demons, death, pigs, Gentiles, no thanks, Jesus, I'll stay in the boat. We know that the local people were afraid of the demons. The ESV says that the demoniacs were so fierce that no one was able to pass that way. That phrase, so fierce, could also be translated very unmanageable or very uncontrollable. And that's why they were dangerous. No one could venture into their territory. No one could manage them until Jesus came along. Again, look at the contrast found in Jesus. His very presence changes the situation. As soon as, as he steps onto the beach, the demons know he's there, and they are coming out of the tombs. They clearly know who he is, and they are concerned to know what he is doing there. So they cry out, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Notice that Matthew has the demons answering the question that the disciples couldn't figure out. It's the Son of God who even the winds and the sea obey. The demons know that. That's why they're nervous. That's why these demons, the most threatening power in this Gentile area, begin to beg. Of course, of course we don't find ourselves in these kinds of clear confrontations with the, the demonic. And part of the problem that actually ensues from that is that legends and stories about the demonic are equated with horror stories. In fact, our fear of the demonic may be expressed by the fact that we don't talk about it very much. And when we do, it sounds like we're telling ghost stories. In doing this, Hollywood has given demons way too much power. I knew I grew up afraid of demons the same way that I was afraid of monsters under the bed. But it is not the way it should work. This episode wants us to admit two things. First, that the devil and his demons absolutely exist. They hate Jesus, they hate his followers, they would celebrate the wanton destruction of God's creation. They would be happy for us not to know that they were there, so long as it meant that we were focusing on ourselves more than Jesus. They are threatening powers. 
But the second thing is that the devil and demons are totally under the authority of Jesus. That means that God's people have no reason to fear Satan or the demonic. And that's not because Christians are more powerful than Satan or demons, because we're not, but because Jesus is. And he is victorious over them on our behalf. He has dealt with the threat of darkness on the cross. And so we cannot, like anything else, deal with this threat by relying on ourselves when it comes to relying on Jesus. He is their creator and he is victorious over them and he will be their judge. And this fact is uh, why the demons know that Jesus has a score to settle with them. That's why they ask, have you come to torment us before the time? Since they know what their ultimate end is, they beg Jesus to be sent into the pigs. They'll leave these men, just give us some more time before the time, send us into the pigs, as they pray. Part of Jesus' mission on earth was to put darkness on notice. All of these exorcisms we see Jesus performing, they're, they're announcements. The devil is bound. His authority is limited. Jesus has veto power over every order that Satan gives to his army. And Satan's end is as near as Jesus' second coming. So the exorcism here is another living illustration. When Jesus sends the demons into the pigs and they go over the cliff into the Lake of Galilee, it's a foreshadowing, a picture of their future end being plunged into the Lake of Gehenna, Lake of Fire. And notice that Jesus does all of this with the ease of a single word, go. Matthew has been so far at pains in his gospel to make us unswervingly convinced that Jesus's word comes with irrevocable authority. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, just before this chapter, it's the summary statement is that Jesus spoke as one with authority, not as their scribes. And his authority extends far beyond the ethical realm. In the very next episode, Jesus heals a leper. He gives the leper a command, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. It obeyed him. Then Jesus runs into the centurion. He says, I'll come to your house. I'll heal your servant. The centurion says, no, Jesus, I know how authority works. I have men above me and underneath me. You just say the word and you can heal him. And he does. He says, go. And in that moment, his servant is healed. Three verses later, it says, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all those who were sick. Then he rebukes the waters and he commands the demons. When the Son of God speaks, the natural and the spiritual move. In the face of fearsome circumstances, can you do that? Of course not. When we spend our time wishing that our words could, and we wallow in our anxiety, we usually end up feeling helpless, powerless. You can't answer your own anxiousness or fear. 
So Matthew suggests you put your trust in the one whose words always work. The Son of God, whose voice, the winds and the seas, the demons, the pigs, and yes, even worldwide pandemics obey. So finally, consider the response here to Jesus. Again, the fear of the herdsmen and the townspeople is not quite the right kind of fear. The response is not the right kind of response. When the people come out, they totally mistranslate this living illustration of God's power. When Luke writes about this episode, he says that the townspeople asked Jesus to leave because they were afraid of him. When they come out, all they see is a man who just sent their economic profits over a cliff and who is more powerful than the demons they were afraid of. They recognize that if they couldn't manage the power of the demons, they definitely couldn't manage the incredible power of Jesus. So they told him to get out of there. They trusted in themselves rather than Jesus. They were focused on their inability to manage the situation more than Jesus's ability. They chose fear instead of the peace that Jesus was holding out to them. How many times over and over have we acted like these unbelievers? These, these two popular stories become a bit more interesting if we, if we could look at a map. They start out on the north, northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus says, let's get into a boat, let's go to the other side. So they do, they get in, they run into a storm. They get to the area of the Gadarenes, which is in the southeastern part of the sea. He deals with the demons. They say, you just go away. He gets into the boat. And the next verse, chapter 9, verse 1, says he goes back to his hometown, Capernaum, in the northwest side of the sea. So what was the point of just going there and back again to run into all that trouble? Why didn't Jesus say, hey, let's get in the boat, go a couple miles down the shore just to avoid the crowds? It's because these things had to happen. They were not incidental. They were part of Jesus's mission to disclose his identity as the son of God, as Yahweh in the flesh and to disclose himself to us that way through the record of it. To reveal that the covenant God, Yahweh, was present with his people and that he is sovereign over every power and every realm and every time. The Son of God is always where to look when we are afraid. Even when it feels like he's sleeping on the job. Maybe in a frustrated prayer or thought, you've accused him of doing as much. We naturally desire for our lives to be well managed, or if you will, for us to have smooth sailing. So when things are not that way, it often makes us feel like God is not managing our situation the right way, or at least not the way uh, we would have him do it. But the call to strong faith is a call to trust in the Son of God always. It's a call to let go of the fear of not being in control. And when our patience starts to run out with God, it's a sign that we'd rather be the one managing his power. 
people of God, our fears may be far more subtle than a storm, but Jesus is no less concerned with them. For kids, learning to trust in the fearless power of Jesus is the best answer to the monsters under the bed or whatever dark thoughts may come around at bedtime. Learning to trust in the power and the wisdom of Jesus is the best answer to the litany of fearsome circumstances or unknowns that come with the realm of parenting. Many of our fears come from our, our finiteness, our inabilities, our inability to stay healthy or to heal our loved ones, our inability to make sure people like us all of the time, our inability to draw others to Jesus or to live forever or avoid pain. Trusting in the infinite power of Jesus to heal us, to vindicate us, to rescue us, save us, is the answer to these fears. The Sovereign Son holds out something that is far better than trusting in ourselves, than being turned inward on ourselves, and wallowing in our anxiousness. That is a hopeless posture. But Jesus offers us hope and peace in the face of fearsome circumstances, we can trust in Jesus with a patient, quiet, storm-tested faith because he is sovereign over everything. He has every authority and he has every ability that we don't. Let's pray. Gracious God and Lord of everything, we thank you for the incredible, incredible wisdom with which you manage our lives, with which you hold at bay every threat in our lives, and the wisdom with which you bring us through any number of fearsome circumstances. We ask, Lord, that you would give us as your people a strength to be confident in you, the strength to be turned out towards you, that you would instill in us a strong faith, that you would draw us to your word, that you would draw us to these pictures of yourself over and over. Lord, we ask that you would be with us, that you would comfort us in any of uh, the number of circumstances that we may be facing today, this week. We think of those uh, who don't know you, Lord, who are terrified, who are confused and are wondering legitimately if this is the end of the world. Lord, we pray that you would draw them to yourself. Pray that you would put people in their paths who could share with them stories of your power. Share with them how you've you saved them, that you've protected them. Lord, we ask that uh, we ask that this word would be life-changing for us. We pray all these things in the precious name of your Son. Amen.